Good evening, guys. Uh, welcome. If you're with us online, let's open up our Bibles this evening. We want to turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 10 uh, and verse 22. We'll pick up our study tonight in the 22nd verse. We'll go through the end of chapter 10 and verse 42 here. Now, previously we saw Jesus. We looked at Jesus, the Good Shepherd, as he revealed himself in the previous section. And he, we saw how he was leading his sheep out of the fold of Israel and also Gentiles out of their fold. And he was leading both into one new fold and one flock, eternal life in him. And we talked about how the sheep have one shepherd, but not all sheep follow the same one. Some follow Jesus and some unfortunately do not. And Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. And so we're going to see the importance of hearing his voice and believing and what exactly that looks like. We're going to look further at how his sheep believe and, on, and, and, and are secure. Uh, we'll see how the Jewish leaders still, after Jesus had said all of this, didn't believe and then, but in contrast to that, how many on the other side of the Jordan, beyond the Jordan, uh, how many believe uh, in that area. And so uh, chapter 10, verse 22, it says this. Now, it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. So this is interesting because I've told you before that, uh, that there were seven main Jewish feasts, and and if you have a pretty good memory, you know that uh, the first three I've talked about with you are in the spring, one is in the summer, and the other are in the fall. So now we have this feast here, and it's called the Feast of Dedication, and it's in the winter. Um, this is actually probably, to most people today, it's not, to most Jews, the most important of the feast. It was important. Uh, but it wasn't one of the seven main feasts. This was one that came later, uh, about 164 years before Christ. And we know it today. They call it the Feast of Dedication. We call it Hanukkah. And it celebrates the cleansing of the temple. Um, so in 164 BC, that was the time of what was called the Maccabean Revolt, uh, named after a man named Judas Maccabees. Uh, he led a revolt uh, against the Syrians. Uh, the Syrian king Antiochus Epiphanes had, uh, who they were ruling uh, that area. The Seleucids were. Seleucus was one of the uh, generals of Alexander the Great. So when Alexander the Great uh, died, his kingdom was divided amongst the uh, amongst his generals. Seleucus, one of those generals, uh, ruled. This part of the world, uh, as it's called uh, Israel, or uh, in the time of the Romans, Palestina, uh, and Palestine, obviously coming from that, Syria, the Seleucid Empire, ruled that area. And eventually, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes uh, went in, he got so, you know, irritated and upset with the Jews, he went in, he desecrated the temple, he sacrificed a, uh, a pig in the temple and, and desecrated the, the temple, entered into the temple. And so there was this revolt, uh, by successful revolt by the Jews 
throwing off the uh, rule uh, or the occupation of uh, Antiochus and the Syrians, and they cleansed the temple afterward. And uh, the temple, they didn't have enough oil during the period of purification of the temple. They, they only had a little bit of oil for the menorah. But this is where the tradition uh, associated with Hanukkah of eight days and nights, because uh, why they celebrate that, because uh, over that period of time, it, a miracle is said to have occurred where what little oil they had, um, it burned uh, for those eight days and nights while they could consecrate and prepare more oil for the lamp. And so that is um, the miracle that is associated with the cleansing of the temple at the time uh, of the Maccabean revolt. And so that's what is celebrated when right around the time we're celebrating Christmas. If you have Jewish friends uh, or neighbors uh, who put the menorah uh, in their window, um, that's what they're celebrating. Well, it, we see it here in the time of Jesus. They were celebrating this. It was called uh, the Feast of Dedication for the dedication, the rededication of the temple. And so Jesus walked in the temple in, in an area called Solomon's Porch. Solomon's Porch was a, uh, a, a large colonnade that uh, went along the eastern side uh, of Herod's expansion of the temple, the, the Temple Mount. It is said to have uh, survived from Solomon's original temple, which is uh, the reason for the name. And it was a place of, uh, of justice. It was a place of, uh, of judgment. And in Herod's temple, we call it Herod's temple, but it, it, it's um, uh, not really Herod's temple. You should know that um, there was the original temple, uh, the f- it's referred to as the first temple or the time is referred to as the first temple period, the time that that temple stood. That was Solomon's temple. That temple was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 BC. When they returned 70 years later, they rebuilt the temple and that is the semp- second temple and that began what is known as the second temple period. Uh, that went from that time about uh, uh, four centuries, well, about five centuries before Christ, up until 70 AD when it was destroyed by the Romans. And that temple, that second temple, is sometimes referred to as Zerubbabel's temple because Zerubbabel was the governor uh, who brought the people back from Babylon uh, who uh, had a large role. Uh, uh, in rebuilding the temple at that time. But that is the second temple, and it was really quite small, and it was expanded over the years. So by the time Herod the Great comes along, there, uh, there had already been not only, not so much expansions uh, to the exact footprint of the temple, uh, although there were beautifications and things that were added uh, to the temple and immediately around the temple, but the expansion of the temple platform. And ultimately, what you see today in Jerusalem is the full expansion that took place under Herod the Great, called the Great because he was uh, an architect uh, of uh, great note and a builder. 
And so by the time that we get to the uh, birth of Christ, the temple that we're dealing with is this vastly expanded and, and, and really quite uh, amazing complex uh, that, that was leveled and all of the walls that you see today uh, really in large part are uh, the, the result of the work uh, of Herod the Great, his design and his uh, engineers and his workers. And so in, in Herod's temple, if we can use that term, uh, this area of Solomon's porch was a gathering place. It was a, a place where particularly the religious leaders would gather, where there was teaching a lot of times. It wasn't a synagogue. The, the temple, you should know, wasn't a synagogue. The temple wasn't a place of teaching. The, temp- the purpose of the temple was sacrifice. And, and the worship of God, uh, particularly at feast times, the temple mount had a synagogue. At the time of Jesus, there was a synagogue on the temple mount. That was a place of worship. There were also synagogues all throughout uh, the, the world at that time, particularly uh, the Roman Empire. And anywhere you had at least 10 men, uh, you could have a synagogue. And so uh, there were synagogues all throughout Israel, all throughout the empire at that time. There was a synagogue on the Temple Mount there. Uh, but there would be Jesus, we see Jesus teaching in the temple, not necessarily in the synagogue, discussing things. And oftentimes it would have been in this place uh, of Solomon's porch, verse 24. And the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. So, this is kind of interesting because it's not as though Jesus hadn't told them already uh, that he was the Messiah. In fact, he had told him so much more associated uh, with that, um, things that they, they aren't necessarily asking for here, not just that he was the Messiah, but that he was the Son of God. And so he had told them that over and over and over again. In fact, in John chapter 5, verse 18, uh, we see Jesus revealing this in chapter 7, verses 28 through 30. In chapter 8, verses 58 and 59, just, just in the Gospel of John already, these are three places that Jesus has revealed this to them. And, and but... The issue was, the re- and the reason that they kept asking him was because they didn't like the answer. So, you know, uh, it's like a child, right? Uh, maybe you've had children and, and, you know, you've given them an answer, but they keep asking you over and over again because they don't like the answer and maybe they want you to change your answer. But, you know, if you're any kind of parent uh, or grandparent worth your salt, you know, uh, no means no, yes is yes, and, and uh, uh, unless, you, you know, maybe your grandparent, you're a little soft, and so, you know, no might mean maybe, and, uh, but, <laughs> you know, they wanted Jesus to change his answer. So it's not as though he hadn't answered, they just, they, they didn't, they wanted the answer to change, and it wasn't going to change because it was the reality. In verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you. I've already told you. I've already answered you. The issue is not that I have it, that I'm keeping you in doubt. The issue is, is that I've told you and you don't believe. Those are two very different issues. And he, and, and he says, you, you don't believe 
Uh, and, and it wasn't just what he had said, but he said, you don't believe the works that I do in my Father's name. They bear witness of me. So I've told you and I've shown you. So there was no excuse. Not only uh, was he not keeping them in doubt, but he had very clearly told them and shown them who he was. Told them who he was and then did the works to back it up. But they didn't believe. He says, verse 26, you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. So it's interesting if Jesus was telling them and if he was showing them, you know, then the natural question is, is, well, you know, why wouldn't they just be okay with that? Why, why wouldn't they just accept his answer, particularly if he had proved it? And, and Jesus says, you know, the problem is, the problem for, for you who do not believe who he's talking to here, he says, you're not of my sheep. So his sheep, what we discover is, his sheep believe. They, they believe, and, and this is a hard thing, but those that aren't his sheep, either now or, or ever, are not going to believe. So maybe someone's not his sheep now, then right now they're not going to believe. Hopefully later on, they'll allow that work of the Spirit to change their hearts. But then there are those who perpetually are not going to believe. And those in a state of unbelief uh, are not his sheep. And they're not in any position to receive what he says, no, no matter how much he, he showed them. And so that's a, kind of a, a, the thing. You look at the, the scripture, you look at the, the gospels in particular, and you think, well, what was the problem? It just seems so obvious. But it's obvious to you because you believe. It's obvious to you because you're one of his sheep. And so, you, yeah, of course, why wouldn't anybody? And this is not making an excuse, in fact, the opposite. But it's just to help you understand that, you know, when people don't believe, you know, a lot of times it's easy to just be c- confused. But really, Jesus makes it quite clear for us. The problem is, is they're, they're just not his sheep. You know, they, they, they can't see these things. And so we need to pray. The scripture says that there is a, there is a veil. There, the, there is a blinder over the, the hearts uh, of Jews. In, that, in this context, in scripture, it's talking about uh, Jewish unbelievers. But it says that there's a veil uh, over their heart that, that they don't believe. And so we need to pray that that veil be lifted. But in a sense, you could say that there are blinders on the hearts of all people who are not as sheep and who don't believe. And Jesus says in verse 27, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So here's a question that some people might ask, well, if his sheep believe and if, and if those that aren't his sheep will not believe, how do we know? How, how do I know? Am I, uh, do I really believe? Am I one of his sheep? Well, 
he says, if you're one of my sheep, you follow me. Who are you following? You know, am I one of Jesus' sheep? Do I, am I really one of his sheep? Do I really believe in him? Well, am I following him? And, or, or am I saying that I'm one of Jesus' sheep and, and that I believe? Uh, but the reality of my life is such that I'm not following him. Well, it kind of dispels with something that people might say is an intangible. You know, they might say, well, you know, uh, how do we know? You know, maybe they're a believer. Maybe I'm, a, you know, I hear people say, say these things. Uh, maybe you have too. I've heard people say, you know, uh, well, you know, um, they say they're, a, this person says they're a Christian, but how do we really know? Well, are they following Jesus? You know, it's simple as that. In, in fact, God doesn't want you to be wondering about those things for yourself or for other people. Number one, for yourself, because you need to know whether or not you've committed your life to Christ. And if you're going to preach the gospel, you need to be able to tell if other people know him or not. People say, well, you know, I don't want to judge. You know, it's your job to judge. They say, well, what about the scripture, you know, when Jesus says, judge not, lest you be judged. Well, you know, there are several verses after that verse. And, and you need to read the scripture in context because he says that you shouldn't judge in hypocrisy and that first you need to remove the plank from your own eye so that you can see clearly to remove the plank from your other eye. The solution is not to say, hey, who am I to judge? I, uh, I can't tell if there's a plank in your eye. I can see it there, but I'm not going to say anything because it's not my job to judge. No, you see it there. It's there. You know it. But if you got stuff in your own life that you need to deal with before God, then you need to deal with that. And then go and help somebody. So you have to be able to judge to preach the gospel, but not in hypocrisy. And not in a sense that, you know, somehow you are God, but you have to be able to make judgments. Yeah, that guy's a believer or no, he's not a believer. Yeah, he's a believer and he, he needs prayer and he needs encouragement or He's not a believer and he needs to hear the gospel. And so we need to be able to, to determine these things. And we need to be able to look at our own life and say, you know what? I'm blowing it. You know, I've been living the life of a hypocrite and I need to get right with God. Or, you know what? I'm right with God and, and uh, I can see that because I'm following Jesus Christ. So you can tell if you are a true believer and if someone else is a true believer based on who they're following and who you are following. And Jesus says, and so you see, well, okay, why does it matter? Well, verse 28, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. You know, I think that a lot of people think that Christians who share the gospel that um, uh, and I hope that well I wish that all Christians were sharing the gospel um, I'm not naive enough to think that all Christians are sharing the gospel I would hope that all of us are looking and praying for opportunities and taking advantage of opportunities to preach the gospel but I think a lot of people think that Christians who preach the gospel 
are doing so just because we want to convince people to think like we think. Or just because we want to get people on our team. You know, like, like we're selling Amway or something and we got to build up our team. You know, like we're the Avon lady. Is there such thing? Is there Avon lady anymore? You know, I remember when I was a kid, Avon was the pyramid. The, you know, it was Avon, Tupperware, uh, you know, all, all of these different uh, ML, multi-level marketing. And, you know, uh, I remember one time I went to visit family and they, they tried to, to rope me into their Amway deal. I'm like, man, you know, these people are shameless. I just came to visit family and they took me to an Amway pitch. And, uh, a, 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 you know, a, and I'm telling you what, those people, those people are, once they're in, they're in. You know, and, and, and a lot of people think that you as a Christian are like that, that, that you're just a spiritual multi-level marketer. And you're just trying to get people on your team because the more people on your team, you know, the, the more uh, whatever you're making spiritually, you know, off of all their sales, you know, because then if they get people on their team, you know, to become Christians, then, then you know, you get, you get all of their spiritual credits too. Uh, uh, you know, because you're on the, on the top or higher up on the pyramid. You know, it's not like that. When we preach the gospel, we're, we're, we're not doing it to convince people to just, because we want people to think like we think or to agree with us. Or We're doing it because eternal life is at stake. And, and honestly, if it wasn't a, about um, serving the Lord and eternal life, uh, we wouldn't be doing it, and none of us should be doing it. But because it is every one of us, it becomes the most important thing uh, that we can do outside of uh, simply worshiping God. And so those who have and uh, those who follow Jesus have eternal life. And Jesus says something here. He says, I give them eternal life, Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. So they have eternal life. And guess what? Eternal life is eternal. I think a lot of people miss that uh, point. And that doesn't just mean ultimately after you die. But eternal life is yours now. You have eternal life now. It's not temporal life. It's eternal life. So Jesus says, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. You know, if, if someone is someone who doesn't believe in the security of the believer in Christ, then they ought to look at the definition of eternal. It doesn't make any sense to believe that you can lose your salvation, but say that you're losing eternal salvation. That's a contradiction. How can you lose something that is eternal? And this is a point I think that, that is <clears throat> sometimes overlooked. But many people worry about that. Jesus said, no one shall snatch them <clears throat> out of my hand. If you turn to Romans chapter 8, let's take a look at <clears throat> some passages. I think it's important um, to spend a little time on this. <clears throat> Romans chapter 8, verse 31 the Apostle Paul writing says this. 
What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as, accounted as sheep for the slaughter, quoting from the Psalms there, uh, Psalm 44. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Jesus says here, no one shall snatch them out of my hand. Those who believe, those who follow, who are following me, they have eternal life. It's eternal and no one will be able to, no one can take them away from me. They belong to me. So let me just say this. If you are saved according, not according to me, if you are saved according to scripture, then you are saved. If you are truly saved, then you are saved. The scripture says it. Now, let me say this. If you are playing games with God, then you have no security. So if you're saved, you're saved. But if you're playing some kind of religious game with God, then, then there isn't security. So we see different verses in the Bible. And, and you know, some people are... They're genuine believers. They're following Christ. But you know what? They may be struggling. They may have sinned and, the, and repented and the Holy Spirit is restoring them. And, and, or they're just going through a hard time. Or, or they're just doing as humans are prone to do. They're doubting. And they, the scripture encourages them. And then there's the person that's playing games with God. And they need the rug pulled out from under them. So, you know, I don't know if you have a toolbox with tools, but uh, I suspect in your toolbox you have more than a hammer. I suspect in that toolbox there are all kinds of tools. And in the scripture there are all kinds of tools, and, and you don't always pull out the same tool. It depends on, on what the work that the Holy Spirit uh, what, what work the Holy Spirit is doing. And so if you're playing games with God, there, there is no security. In Matthew chapter 7, let's take a look at a couple of passages in this regard. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. So, back to the Sermon on the Mount that we mentioned earlier. Jesus says this. He says, Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Ah, so there are people who know who Jesus is. They even have the religious terminology. They're, 
They even say, Lord, Lord. They, 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 they use the term Lord. But they won't necessarily enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. In other words, who's following Jesus. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? So they do religious things. Cast out demons in your name, maybe even significant religious things. And done many wonders in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So we see there that they have the religious terminology. They even have, you know, religious uh, activity uh, in their lives. But they don't know Jesus. He doesn't know them. And they're actually living in sin. He says, you who practice lawlessness. It's not as though they just sinned and repented of their sin. But, but that is their that is the state of their life. That is their lifestyle. And if their lifestyle is, is that they're following after a different shepherd other than Jesus, based on that lifestyle, then they don't belong to him. He says, I'll say to them, depart from me. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. This is a really well-known chapter. If you've ever talked to anyone, section, if you've ever talked to anyone who tries to say that a person can lose their salvation, uh, this might be the first place that they would turn to, to make that argument. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. But I want to show you a few things with this passage, how it doesn't argue that a person can lose their salvation, how it argues that a person uh, that is not saved can't be saved any other way than in Christ, uh, but that there are better things for believers. Background, uh, before we read this section, the author of Hebrews, many believe the Apostle Paul is the author of Hebrews. I, uh, I think that there's a lot of evidence to that, but, uh, but you, it, not enough to say definitively that that is the case. But whoever the author of Hebrews was, we can say why they wrote the book of Hebrews. It's very clear when you read the book of Hebrews. And there, so Hebrews, the title is a little bit of a, a giveaway. It's being written to Jewish believers uh, or people that profess to be believers in Christ who are Jewish. And when you read it, um, they are thinking of leaving Christianity and going back to Judaism. Specifically, not as though they had, when they became Christians, exactly left Judaism, but, but leaving the new covenant and going back to relying on the old covenant. Feasts and sacrifices and, and all of these other things. And so he makes this argument in the book of Hebrews, the author does, the superiority of Christ and the new covenant to the priesthood and the old covenant. And so it's an argument to people who are, and you say, well, why would they be thinking of that? Well, there was a lot of pressure. Pressure from people to leave Christianity, to come back to their family, to come back to tradition, to come back to things that had been taken from them, uh, and to leave a difficult life in following Christ. And so that's the point, uh, or the main 
purpose of the letter of Hebrews. So then when we read Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4, the author says this, It is impossible for those who were once enlightened. It is possible to be enlightened but not saved. I've met a lot of people in church that were enlightened. In other words, they, they understood some things. They, they understood some religious things. There was a, a measure of enlightening and have tasted the heavenly gift. A lot of churchgoers have tasted of the good things of God and have even been partakers of the Holy Spirit. So in other words, they come in and amongst, they're not, notice it doesn't say indwelt by the Holy Spirit because that's unique to a believer. But a person can be enlightened and can taste and can be a partaker, but not a true believer, and then walk away. So the word choice here is, is very specific. He says, and have uh, tasted the good word of God. They can come and they can even taste of, of God's word and, and, and the powers of the age to come. If it's impossible, if they fall away, verse 6, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. So what he's saying is, look, if you, remember the, the, the purpose, if you go back to the sacrifices, if you go back to leaning on all of those things under the old covenant, don't think that you can be saved under that. It's impossible for you to be saved and to, at the same time, walk away seemingly from Christ and crucify again the Son of God and put Him to open shame. He gives us an illustration. It's, it's kind of like the earth, he says, which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful uh, for those by whom it is cultivated, receives blessing from God. But then if it starts to bear thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. But then notice verse 9. But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you, yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. So he says, beloved, we don't have to worry about these things with you. True believer, we don't have to worry about these things with you because we're confident of salvation in your life. But if there's people that are playing games with God, they want to do the religious thing for a while, but then, you know, later on they walk away, they go back to their old dead religion or to nothing or whatever else, they can't be saved in that state. They shouldn't think that, you know, they can just trade one religion for another and be right with God. It's impossible apart from Christ. That's the point that he makes there uh, in Hebrews chapter 6. And so uh, we see that those who don't truly have a relationship with Christ, they don't have security. Now, some people point to, to passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, verses 1 and 2, uh, to say, you know, you can be saved, um, but then if you don't continue, uh, then you can be lost. Uh, but if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, of course, uh, that is <clears throat> the focus of that chapter is the resurrection. Um, but 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 1 
says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also received, uh, you received, and in which you stand, by which you also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So what this says is what we see several times in Scripture is not that a believer uh, can start out but not finish and then not be saved, but that a person can be enlightened, a person can uh, partake, uh, a person you know, can um, enjoy some of the benefits of what God is doing without being saved and then walk away having never truly been saved and be lost. But what the scripture teaches us is if you're a true believer, you'll persevere. You'll endure. So what we see is, is when um, our faith is genuine, it's lasting. When our faith is true, it endures. The true believer doesn't walk away. And that's the point that this, that this verse makes. Um, and so if you come to Scripture and you start, you, you have an idea. And the idea is a person can lose their salvation. And you go and you can find a verse and you say, okay, well, if I, if I take this this way, then, then, then I can make it say uh, or support my idea. But then you go to other scriptures that seemingly contradict your idea. What do you know? Your idea is wrong. You've got to start over. And in fact, it's better not to start with an idea, but to start with scripture and let scripture produce your ideas. Instead of reading into the text, allow the text to speak for itself. Instead of going at it with a system and imposing your system upon the Word of God, let the Word of God uh, develop your theology. And so what we see here is, is that this verse in 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that true believers persevere. Sometimes people will go to places like Revelation chapter 3. In Revelation chapter 3, uh, verse 5, uh, it says this, it says, uh, and this was uh, in the letters to the seven churches. Jesus speaking uh, in Revelation uh, in, in these letters to, to the seven churches. And, and, and uh, this was in particular was to the church uh, in Sardis. By the way, all these churches were in Asia Minor. Um, there's more to it than that. Uh, they represent uh, periods of church history. Uh, you can go back and listen to our studies, watch our studies uh, in the book of Revelation, or join us next time we get there. It'll be a little bit, uh, but that's okay. Um, but uh, they represent periods in church history. They also speak to, uh, can speak to churches today and even to individual believers. But they were two specific churches. And he says to the church in Sardis, Revelation 3, verse 5, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. And I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. So people say, okay, again, if you're going at it with, a, with an understanding, you can lose your salvation. They say, see, this supports that. Because Jesus can blot your name out of the book of life. 
The problem is, is that ignores something else I'm going to show you in just a moment here. But it also ignores the, the, the context of this reference. So they understood what it meant to, to have your name blotted out of, of uh, a registry. And when a person died, their name was removed from the city registry. So when you were born, your name was written on the books of the city. You're a citizen of this city. Your name's written in there on the day of your birth. And when you die, they blot your name out. Your name is removed from the city registry. So the city registry in many cities in ancient times was only a registry of the living, not, not the dead, or not the people we hope to be born someday. It just, just the living. So when someone dies unsaved, they're, they're, they die in a state of spiritual death, you might say. They're blotted out of the book of life. That, that's what Jesus says. And those who, who don't die spiritually... They're going to remain in the book of life. They're written in the book of life when they believe and their name remains in there. And when they're saved, uh, their name is put in, put in the book of life and, and it always remains there. In fact, in Revelation chapter 20, verse 15, we see that anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So this is a book that you want your name in. And when you place your faith in Christ, you're born again, right? Jesus said that, not our words, his, John chapter 3. When you place your faith in Christ, you're born. You come to life. You're a dead man walking without Christ, and you have new birth and new life in Christ, and your name is written in the book of life. Now, if you never come to Christ, you're dead. And in a sense, you died to sin through Adam, and your name is blotted out, you could say. Your name is not in that book. So a lot of people look at that, and they say, well, you know, see, your name, everybody's name starts in there. But, but that's a misunderstanding of the way that, that, uh, the way that it worked. And that wouldn't have made sense to them, because that's not the way that it worked in the ancient world. So the question is, is people say, so are you a Calvinist, or are you an Arminian? The answer is neither. We're neither. We're Christians. We're we're followers of Christ, the Good Shepherd. We're believers in the Word of God. Let me say this. Calvinism is unscriptural. I'll say it again. Calvinism is not scriptural. You know, I don't know what else to tell you. Full-blown, there are aspects of Calvinism that are biblical, but full, and I don't have time to get into it tonight, but if you're a full five-point Calvinist, that's not scriptural. There are things that are tenets of Calvinism that are not in the scripture, that can't be supported by the scripture. But guess what? If you're at the other end of the spectrum, that's not scriptural either. And there are things there as well that are not found in the word of God we need to rightly, the scripture says this. It says, rightly divide the word of truth. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. We need to seek to rightly divide 
the word of truth. We need to be workers, Paul says, who, who are not ashamed. Servants of God who are not ashamed, who rightly divide the word of truth. What does that phrase, rightly divide, mean? It means this, to cut straight. To cut straight. You know, uh, it drives me nuts when I cut something and it's crooked. You know, like you're cutting a shipping label maybe. And you know, I like nice straight cuts. And the paper cutter works well for that unless I do a lousy job of putting the paper on the paper cutter and holding it on the paper cutter. But you know what? When it comes to the Word of God, maybe you're okay with a crooked label, but you shouldn't be okay with cutting the Word of God crookedly. What, you know, all over the place. And that's how a lot of people divide the Word of truth. You know, you're cutting through the Word of God. And when you make a cut, it's on this side of the cut, it's this, and on this side of the cut, it's that. And it really makes everything this or that. Yes or no, black or white. If you're doing this, it's kind of like, well, I believe this here, but then down here, I'm over here because you're cutting the word of God like this. And what you're doing is you're, you're wandering through the word of God like a snake, you know, encapsulating all the ideas that you like, or better yet, all the, the twists on the ideas that you like so that they fit into your system. But God says, straight cut, consistent cut. And you know when you cut straight, what happens? Well, you might be on the right side right now of some things, but then you might come down the road a little bit and realize, ooh, I'm now on the wrong side of the line. Well, I don't move the line. I move. I don't change, make the line now, you know, include my idea. I move. I change my ideas. But some people aren't willing to do that because they got the system and they're more devoted to the system than they are to God and to his word. And so people ask that question. They want to know, you know, what's your system? You know, what, 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 how do you classify yourself? Well, let me just say this. Systems cause people to ignore scriptures that don't fit the system or to change scriptures that don't fit the system. And to force others into their own funnel of ideology. And we've got to be faithful to the word of God and not do that. And so like I said, the right tool for the job. Sometimes you're dealing with sheep that need encouragement. And sometimes you're dealing with sheep who need the wool removed from their eyes. And so you've got to decide, you know, what scripture applies to this situation, and then rightly divide the word of truth. So the question is, you know, which am I? Which am I? Am I, am I a true believer, or, you know, am, am I somebody, you know, that, that is uh, following Jesus Christ, um, or am I somebody that, you know, uh, needs to be challenged, uh, needs to change some things and needs to start truly following Jesus Christ. And, and, and more importantly, not only which am I, but how do I know? And the Word of God, again, makes it clear. I don't have to subjectively say, yeah, 
I think, I'm, I, think I am. In other words, I don't have to say, am I truly following Christ? I'm pretty sure I am. No. I can look then again, not, just as I could look to the Word of God to see what it means to truly be a believer in Christ, I'm following Christ, I can also look to the same Word and see what does it mean to truly be following Christ because that's not even left up to interpretation. The Word of God makes that clear. Let's turn to the book of 1 John. We can do this all in, in John's first uh, uh, epistle. 1 John chapter 2. So how do I know? How do I know if I'm really following Jesus? 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. Now by this we know that we know Him. See, I don't just make this stuff up. Usually. No, I'm kidding. I don't. (laughs) I don't. Ever. Now by this we know that we know Him. Oh, I'm interested in this. If we keep His commandments, what does that mean? He who says, I know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in Him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked, he being Jesus. So the commandments are the commandments of Jesus. A lot of people try to say, well, you know, you uh, need to be keeping the Old Testament law. Those aren't Jesus' commandments. Those were God's commandments under the Old Covenant to Israel, but they're not Jesus' commandments. And he clarifies here that his commandments have to do with walking as he walked. His commandments are the things that he said and did as he taught on this earth. Now, the Ten Commandments, by the way, those those are moral. They precede the law. They extend through the period of the law. And nine out of the ten are repeated in the New Testament. Only one isn't. That's the Sabbath. And that's because that wasn't moral. It was ceremonial. The other nine all are. Don't murder. Don't steal. uh, Don't... Uh, bear false witness, have no other gods before me, have no engraven images, uh, honor your father and your mother. You you know the commandments. Man's relationship to God, man's relationship to man. Two tables uh, of the law, six and four. And so, uh, or four and six. So we know these things. And so uh, it's very clear. So he says the first thing, the first way we can know if we're truly following Jesus is is that we're walking as he walked. We're we're, uh, keeping his word. We're doing the things that he taught us. If you turn further over in 1 John chapter 3, verse 14, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. So the first thing, we follow Jesus. The second thing, we love each other. We love the brethren. He who does not love his brother, what does that mean? Abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Verse 16. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, 
Let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. So we can know, we can have assurance in our hearts if we love not just in word, but in deed. Our brethren, verse 24, now he who keeps his commandment, uh, the third thing, he who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. So we follow Jesus, we love the brethren, and we have evidence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. You turn to the next chapter, 1 John chapter 4, verse 13. By this, we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us His Spirit. So, you're following Jesus, as I said. You're loving the brethren and you have evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life, because the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance in Christ. It's the seal. If you're married, it's like the wedding ring. Yep, I'm married, in case you forgot. And you look, and you should, in case you forget, be able to look at that seal in your life, the Holy Spirit, who you have been sealed with promise, and you should be able to see, and we see in, uh, in Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit, right? Turn over to Galatians, let's go, let's take a, you know, I know we're getting short on time, but what is time anyway? We got all night, exactly. Galatians chapter 5. He talks about the fruit of the Spirit in verse 22. Fruit, by the way, is singular. So the fruit of the Spirit is love. And then there are all of these characteristics of that. Joy, peace, long-suffering, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Against such there is no law, and those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. So if you can look at your life, you, you say, do I, have, it, do I have evidence of the Holy Spirit? Is there love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, uh, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? These are practical things that you should see in your life if you have the Spirit in your life. And if you don't see these things, then it's reasonable to conclude that you don't have the Holy Spirit in your life. And that, that needs to be changed. So, you know, we, I think a lot of people think that these things are just like, well, no, the Bible is hard and fast. It's clear. You, can, you don't have to wonder. You don't have to hope. Um, you don't have to be reasonably confident you can know. The Bible says that, that you can know. Are you living according to His Word? Are you loving others? Do you have the Holy Spirit? And is the Holy Spirit drawing you closer to Jesus and transforming your life? Then you're His. You're uh, a true believer and certainly you're following Jesus Christ and you believe in Him. You're, you're one of His sheep. 
He says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. So no one can take them from him because no one can take them from the father. And he says, and I and my father are one. So the power that he has, that I have that power. Verse 31, the Jewish leaders, they still didn't believe. The Jews took up stones again to stone him. And Jesus said, many good works I have shown you uh, from my father. For which of these works do you stone me? And they said, well, not for a good work, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. So again, I showed you all those times where they had already, Jesus had already answered them. He answers them again. They still, don't, they still don't like the answer. They still want to kill him. Okay. And Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? I said, you are God. Psalm 82, verse 6, you are God. Speaking about the judges of Israel who represented God. He called them gods, little g. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, verse 35, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blasphemed because I said, I am the son of God. He said, if he called them gods, little g, then what is the problem with me saying, I am the son of God, and him saying, I am God? If he was truly the son of God and come from heaven, how much more should he be referred to that way? And if I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. Verse 40, he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first, and there he stayed. So he goes to the other side of the Jordan, an area called... uh, Bethvara, house of the ford, where just north of the Dead Sea, where John was baptizing, where Jesus was baptized uh, by John, where then he begins his ministry uh, from. And many came to him and said, verse 41, John performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true. And many believed in him there. And so Jesus's ministry is is winding down and now it's really kind of in a way it's come full circle back to where he started at his baptism and many believed him there so this section of scripture uh, what i really like about this section of scripture is is that it is a great opportunity for each person to evaluate where they are at for every person when they come to a place like this in Scripture to be able to evaluate where they stand. Are we His sheep? Do we hear His voice? Do we follow Him? And are we secure in Him? Or are we like the people that Jesus was talking to who did not believe in Him, who were not His sheep? And so, you, you, you know, you answer that question, but also even as you know the answer to that question, then there also is this, this work that's happening. Okay, so I believe, but is there areas where I need to grow? Yes, I'm his. Yes, I'm doing these things, but, but are there areas there where I, that I see where I know I'm his, but I'm, I need to grow? It never stops. Even when you know that you're a believer, it never stops be, being an opportunity for you to evaluate yourself and where you're at in terms of your relationship. But the most important thing is, is 
just answering that question. Uh, what flock are you a part of? What fold uh, are you in? Because really, that, that is the essence of life. Answering that question, who is your shepherd? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your word here this evening. And Lord, we thank you that whether we've been a Christian for a short period of time or whether we've been a Christian for many years, uh, that we need to evaluate ourselves. That those that have maybe not truly placed their faith in you need to realize that and give their life to you while there's still time. And those that have, while they have, perhaps there is opportunity for that continued work of your spirit in our lives. Regardless, may we look into that perfect law of liberty and see, Lord, what you want us to see. As our heads are bowed tonight as we're praying, I want to extend to you an invitation from God directly. And that is simply this. Is Jesus your shepherd? Have you received Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for your sins? Do you know that you have eternal life? Are you following Him? Do you belong to Him? Do you have His Spirit living and working in you and through you? If the answer to that question is honestly no, then my plea to you is don't leave that way. Don't leave tonight. Change it tonight. Begin a relationship truly with Christ tonight. Invite Him into your life. He'll come in. He'll change you. You'll be born again. But it's a choice that you have to make. If you don't know, as we've said, eternal life is at stake. It's heaven, it's hell. But you can know. If you'd like to pray with me tonight, I'd love, I would be honored to pray with you. I just invite you, if you're, you're here, you can slip up your hand where you are and we'll pray together as we close. If you haven't done so, take this opportunity tonight. We'll pray. And prayer is not just saying words. God hears Father, we thank you. Thank you so much for your church, your people. Bless them. I'll continue that work of your spirit in each one. Be with your people. Be with them tonight. Be with them going forward. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.